Hello, I'm Linda Elder. Welcome to this podcast. I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Gerald Nosich. Hello, Gerald. Hi, Linda. Good to be with you again. We are coming to you from the Foundation for Critical Thinking, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization in California. You can join our community at criticalthinkingcommunity.org. We are focused in this series on the analysis of reasoning going deeper. When we think of the analysis of reasoning, we also think of the elements of reasoning. So we could say the elements of reasoning going deeper. And that this means we're assuming that you have some beginning knowledge of the elements of reasoning before uh, listening to this podcast or viewing it. But in any case, we're going to, in this session, be focused on questions in reasoning. So we're going to be exploring the element of reasoning questions, and we're going to burrow into this a bit and see how we can use questions in ways we don't tend to, we can employ uh, questions in deeper ways so that we can uh, think better across the domains of our lives. Mm -hmm. So let's start, if we could, Gerald, with the, the, the role of questions in human life. How do you view the role of questions in human life? Well, uh, I view questions as essential. I, I could almost say the most essential part of reasoning about life, but I would probably have to take it back. That's too sweeping, but it's at least, it's at least essential. Um, questions are what drive our reasoning and thus our, and to the extent that reasoning drives our lives, questioning underlies everything. So without questions, there's nothing for me to explore or investigate or think about. I at first have to see it kind of as a question, something to look for. And one thing that seems important to me about that is the difference between having questions ex explicitly and having questions only implicitly in the, in the back of our minds. Um, so for instance, when, when my son Matt was, uh, was an adolescent, he wanted to learn about how to, how to navigate an airport and get on the right flight and everything like that. And uh, I could have taught him and in a way I did some of that, but what I asked him to do is to, to ask himself, so what questions should I be asking at any particular moment, right? Mm -hmm. And that helped him a lot because that meant he was formulating the question, asking it, and then finding out answers or partial answers to the questions. So if you just think about going through an airport, you're confronting questions all over the place. Where is my flight? What line do I stand in? How do I get through airport security in the quickest possible way? Uh, you're confronting all kinds of questions, but most of the time, much of the time, those questions are just unarticulated. They're just way inside us. And so we go through kind of an autopilot. And an assumption I make is that by and large, most of the time, the more explicit our questions are, the better. So I see questions as underlying all aspects of our lives and with reasoning through aspects of our lives, it's very important for the questions to be explicit. 
articulated to the extent that I can do that. So. And by the way, your example uh, of uh, working with your son, focused on working with your son, reminded me of the example of Socrates. The, what Socrates, I believe, in part was doing was trying to create methodologies for questioning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was trying to figure out how do we get to the best answers? Mm -hmm. And it seems to me, I'm Socrates Mm -hmm. uh, for the moment, it seems to me that the best way to get to the best answers is through the best questions. Right, yeah. And his way of teaching, which was fundamentally through inquiry, right, is something that we should really study as, as teachers, as instructors. Because in other words, imagine a, a, a K through 12 school system whose fundamental, one of their fundamental purposes is to teach students how to ask the kinds of questions you are helping your son learn to ask. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As a routine um, matter of fact. In right. other words, what we do here is we, we focus on questions. Right. What we do in the school is we teach you how to ask good questions. Mm-hmm. We're more concerned about your questions than we are about your answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we, we want to make sure you know how to ask questions. Mm-hmm. You know when to ask a given question and when to not ask a given question. Uh, so mm-hmm. that, that, that example of Socrates comes back again and again to me. Yeah, and I'm glad you said, especially about the the teaching part, that one of the things we're doing is teaching students to ask questions. And there are, in my experience, there questions fall into a large number of varieties, but here are two. Many times I could get my students to ask questions in the class, like about the discipline or about what we're studying or about what an author means. And there I could focus on what makes it a good question. Like what's the author's main point is a, is a good question. And what reasons or evidence does the author give to support her main point? Those are also very good questions. They're good questions because they go to the heart of the matter. And that's a lot of what it is I was teaching. But there's a very different sense, quite different sense, I think, of what it means to ask a good question. And I'd say that at the, at the, at the root, what makes something a good question is it's a question I really want to know the answer to. (laughs) And I have a feeling that at school, Uh a lot of the time, students are asking questions, or teachers who promote question asking, are asking questions because they're in that school mode, they're in the questioning mode in class, but that's different from really caring about what the answer to that question is. Um, uh, Yeah, so. Yes. uh, Yeah. I There's want, a lot of, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I want students to be interested in the, in the subjects we're, we're learning about. Uh, I can't always control that, and questions often provoke that, but still, there are some pro forma questions that students ask. 
Well, I want to, yeah, I wanted to jump in there because you said, I think you said that their students tend to be asking the questions that they're supposed to be asking, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering whether you could even say that they're asking the questions. Right. In other words, they're not really asking the questions in this case. They're actually just answering the questions that have been formulated for them. Indeed. But the important questions that you face in life are not going to be formulated for you. They're going to be formulated by your by you. And if you're not formulating those important questions, yeah, how are you living your life? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that that's a, that's exactly right. Something in a way, similar goes on with teaching. I taught philosophy, philosophy of the arts, and. Uh, and my students did really well. I'd give them questions, essay questions on their exams, and they would do really well. It'd be very nice reasoning. It took me years to realize that much of the reasoning, the excellent reasoning that I saw in my student answers, it was excellent a lot because it was my own reasoning that they were, they were giving back to me. And I found that if I asked them questions that on an exam, say, that were that we had not covered in the course, but were like the ones we'd covered in the course, they were often no better at answering those questions once the course was over than at the beginning. In fact, what they did is they reverted back to their, to their old, to, they reverted back to their, the, the way they reasoned about it before they had ever taken the course, that kind of natural, implicit way we have of reasoning. And so, so the way that relates to what you've just said is I would ask them, okay, so in ethics, I might say, okay, how would a utilitarian view this? And, uh, and so I'm asking a question about ethics, seemingly, but the question I'm really asking is, would you please repeat back to me what I told you about mm -hmm. utilitarianism? I wasn't really yeah. asking them to yes. think through utilitarianism. So I had to change the mode. Well, yes. so so the 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 idea here, one of them that I'm getting is that if you're if you are thinking critically, then you're asking good questions, and you're asking them yourself you, on your own accord. You are you may have somebody may have raised the issue with you, right. and they may have given you the idea. Right. But if you don't take it up, or let's say when you take up the idea, you take it seriously, you right. ask the questions that emerge from that, right. you ask those questions, then you're in a position to pursue the answers to them. Indeed. But if you're not generating any questions, because you don't know how to generate questions, mm -hmm. even though you're in a class where you're being asked to generate questions, mm -hmm. the professor is still inadvertently teaching you to follow his ideas because of the patterns that you're bringing, the students are bringing to the setting. That, right. And so it's, a, yeah. it's complex. But, yeah. the, but, the thing I, but the thing that I want to again stress is that thinking, as you said, is driven by questions. And if, we, if, 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 if I am not generating powerful questions for myself, Mm -hmm. Then I'm not. Then I'm not really in charge of my life. Right. Yeah. And, right. right? Yeah. Because because then I'm being I'm kind of, I'm going with the flow. I'm being blown in this or that direction because I'm going with other people's questions mm -hmm. or the questions that they're 
for sort of I'm I'm soaking up from them, um, and so the like taking a perfect a sort of paradigm case of an example. Say gang members, they're um, they're, they're soaking up ideas from one another. They're they're asking the same kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. They're they're all willing to stay within the, the that question range, mm-hmm. right? So how do we get up ahead of this other gang? How do we let them know we're boss? Mm-hmm. How do we keep people in mm-hmm. the group? You know, th- questions like that. Mm-hmm. So the question clusters that you're living within mm-hmm. are the question clusters that are guiding the quality of your life. That's another way of saying it. So, yeah. so can I ask you a, a, a personal question? What's a, what would you say is a powerful question that, uh, that guides your life or has shaped your life that you personally have asked? That is an interesting question. I think that the most, one of the most significant questions that has guided my life is how can I do something to help the world become uh, more rational, uh, uh-huh. better. I would have said before I had the tools of critical thinking, the language, I would have said, how can I contribute to making the world a better place? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I have a deep belief that we can be rational creatures mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that we can solve the problems that we face. Mm-hmm. So that I think is has been a guiding. Ah, nice. Yeah. Very nice, yeah. Um, what would what would you say? Well, uh, off the top of my head, I'd say I, I don't have one as deep and all encompassing as yours is. But a question, again, it has to do with age for me, and then that is the question is how can I make life for me and my family better? Um, mm-hmm. Where I could spell out kind of what better better is. Um, and that's a, that's a, in one sense, that's a question that guided much of my life with my family. But there's another sense in which I don't, I didn't ask it until maybe I was 45. That is, it never occurred to me as an explicit question. I'm hoping I did things in that direction, but it helped a great deal for me to, to ask it explicitly because now I could, I could apply critical thinking, I could apply creative thinking, I could think of what are some actual ways of doing this that I have not yet considered, what are the implications of doing it this way or that way. So asking it of myself explicitly just opened up all these avenues of my life, many of which were then further questions. Uh, yeah. so. so then that, that, that's, um, that's an interesting activity. I think everyone should pause and do that. You know, just just write down a short list of the questions that have mainly guided your life to this point. Yeah, yeah. And what are the questions that are guiding your life right now into the future? Yeah. And so some people don't, I think most people don't think seriously about questions because they don't have the tools to think seriously about questions and they when did, when was the last time somebody on the streets was talking to someone else about questions? I mean, it's just not something that we do in, the, yeah. in life. Uh-huh. But it is something, it is what Socrates was saying that we do need to do. Right. We need to do it regularly. And I'm going to, if I'm Socrates, I'm going to cost you on the street. I'm going to be doing it to you every time I see you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, so questions have been brushed under the 
rug in terms of our use of theory of questions mm -hmm. to improve um, human life and the the lives that we affect as mm -hmm. humans. So we just as a beginning place, then we can start to think more seriously about just the concept of questions mm -hmm. and the role we're giving it in our lives and whether we're taking command of our questions or whether we're just going along with the questions around us. And mm -hmm. as you say, most of these are at the implicit level. And mm -hmm. that's another problem because then we don't even really even, we don't really even know the questions that we are being driven by mm -hmm. because it's at the implicit level. So if it's at that level, then we're really in trouble. So we don't have any idea what we're doing here <laughs> because we don't know what the questions are that we're uh, asking that we're answering. It's, so that's a good starting place. Yeah. It's difficult to learn. There's that, there's that stepping back move, right? And that reflective move where you step back from the issue that's confronting you and you, and you ask yourself, not about the issue, but you ask yourself, what questions should I be asking about the issue? Mm -hmm. that, that's, that, that stepping back, that reflective step seems to me to be characteristic of critical thinking. And it's hard to do. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not saying that's the only way of, of thinking well, but it's, it's hard to do. Um, hard to do, especially as a daily practice. Well, I think too, we, we sometimes we, we may say, well, I am, I am asking questions. Okay. So let me give you an example. So you're in a, in a, a, a romantic relationship, let's say, and you're having some kind of problem and you ask, so let's say you say, okay, so I, I saw this video on the importance of asking questions and going deeper. So I'm going to ask this person certain questions and I'm going to ask them questions about their purpose. And I'm going to ask them questions about information they're using. So, you know, I'm making some moves like that, but actually um, not that those are bad moves. Those are, as it were, reasonable moves in and of themselves, but maybe in context, the question, the, the, the main question I should be asking is, should I be even in this relationship? Oh, right, right. You see, so we, we can't, obviously, we don't want an academic approach mm -hmm. to the uh, questions in a way that disconnects it from reality. So in other words, you say, okay, well, I'm going to ask some good questions right now, but maybe you're not even facing the real issue here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe the real question, the most important question is, what is the issue here that I need to face or deal with? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so there, there, okay, then that brings in the willingness, right, intellectual courage, right, to face the questions that I need to ask myself, right, sometimes we're not asking the questions because we can't, as it were, stand the answer, or yeah. we fear the answer, that's right, or we yeah. don't want to have to deal with something, mm -hmm. I just don't want to be bothered, so, oh. Yeah, it's not the best relationship, but you know, it's better than some, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, right. right, right. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, about romantic relationships, um, the uh, 
So there's a section in my, in my second book uh, in which I give an analysis of marriage, like what assumptions are you making? And, and then I answer them. What are some of the implications and consequences? What's your point of view? Using elements of reasoning. Well, someone at the foundation gave a workshop to uh, elementary school teachers in South Africa. And uh, they, these were all women. And uh, he had them read that section about uh, questions I can ask about my marriage. And uh, they were just quite taken with those questions. And they went home to their husbands and asked, so what assumptions are you making about our marriage? And the, and the husbands were taken aback by, by the question, what's your point of view on, on, our, on our marriage? And, uh, or a concept, what, what is your concept of being married? What do you, what do you mean by that? And it was, it was just very enlightening. I'm not sure always in a positive way, but but at least uh, initially they were taken aback, but I think they were very good questions. And so, so that so that leads to then some of the the critical thinking concepts mm -hmm. that we can utilize in let's say further understanding the role of questions and thinking. So for example, let's take the elements of reasoning. We can, we can, we can talk about the elements of reasoning and their relationship to questions. We talk about intellectual standards and their relationship to questions and intellectual virtues and their relationship to questions and the barriers in their relationship to questions. And then other, we can take other approaches to questions as well. So just, bar, just, just jumping in then with the elements of reasoning. So, each of the elements of reasoning lends itself to questions that can be asked based on those elements of reasoning. So could you give us a few examples, Gerald, in any of the elements? Yeah, so, uh, so there, there are eight elements that we talk about or eight categories of elements. Um, uh, assumptions is one. And so I can always ask, what are my assumptions in this particular situation? I can also ask, what are, what are the assumptions being made by the other person? I don't need to ask them. I can kind of reason it out for myself, maybe imperfectly, but I can ask, are my assumptions valid or invalid, right? I mean, are they well-founded or not? A lot of times people are against assumptions, but of course we make assumptions all the time and they're perfectly okay. So that's, uh, that's assumptions, but the same holds for any of the other elements of reasoning. Um, like, what information do I have about this situation? And a, another in, important question that bears on that is, what information about this situation do I not have, but that I need? Oftentimes, the information that I have is much more prominent to me than the, than the information I don't have and I haven't quite noticed that I don't have. Something similar holds with regard to interpretation, conclusions. How am I interpreting this situation? That's just a great question because you oftentimes, for most of us, we just look at the world and see it seemingly as it is. I see the situation as it is. I see how my family is, uh, is responding to me. I see how the students are responding to me. I don't quite realize that, that seeing that this is the way it is, is really an interpretation. It's really a conclusion I'm drawing based on, well, in the case of students looking at their faces as they in class or how they, they're talking in small groups. I can, I can see them doing that. Are they talking on the topic? That I may not have such good information about. So 
uh, seeing the world in terms of how am I interpreting this and I, am I interpreting it accurately and clearly and fairly? Those are, those are good basic questions uh, about the elements of reasoning, in this case, interpretation, conclusion. And, uh, and there are questions that we don't usually ask, but they open up whole areas of insight into the world around me. Um, here's a teacher-like example. Um, I will sometimes have a student at the end of a class, 40 students in the class who will say, it, it, it was completely unclear. I, it, 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 the whole class, the whole class was unclear. And uh, I, for many years, would just be, I'd just be not heartbroken, but along that, along that path, I'd feel it. Oh, my goodness, I was very unclear in class that I didn't convey it. And so think of it that, think of that. This is one student out of 40 who said something to me and I'm drawing conclusions inside me based on one student's testimony, mm -hmm. one student's response to me. So I began sending out, having passing out in class a, a student response and I'd find out how many students thought it was going too fast, too slow, whether it was clear, unclear, what was clear and what wasn't clear. And students could fill out this form anonymously and maybe like, two or three minutes and then I'd report out because not only did I unconsciously take that one student's comment as representative of everyone's, but that student also took his or her interpretation as representative of everyone's. The person didn't just say it was unclear to me, but it was unclear, that is as if it was unclear to everyone. And so by hearing other students' interpretations, their conclusions, it kind of made a nice corrective effort for me as well as for the students. So I've gone off about interpretations, but well, the yes, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to just say just say that. So in the original, when the student first said this to you, your your question probably was something like oh, I wonder how I can do a better job of reaching the students then. Yeah, so you, right. You went to that question. Right. At an unconscious level, most likely. Right. And then right. you had a little time to think about it. And then you thought, wait a minute, uh, maybe I'm asking the wrong question. This is probably still happening at the unconscious level for you, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. But then you, you become a little, it starts to become a little more clear, like the move you should make mm -hmm. that would give you the data that you need right. to make that decision. So then the question is transformed to, how can I find out what the students actually do think? Indeed, yeah. And that's that, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a question about accuracy um, of one of the standards, of course, but mm -hmm. oftentimes our exploring of the elements sends us there almost directly. How can I find out if these, I mentioned assumptions, what are the assumptions the other person is making? How can I find out if these are the assumptions the other person is making? Right? Mm -hmm. um, well, and it's interesting because as I was trying to explain that just mm -hmm. now, it was sort of fun because I said I was asking probably at the unconscious level. So that 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 points to the fact that we're, as you said earlier, we're we're sort of constantly asking questions, or at least mm -hmm. routinely. Mm -hmm. They're mainly at the unconscious level. So imagine being able to step back up from that and see all of that. Right. In other words, so as you go through the day, 
try to do this, mm -hmm. ask yourself throughout the day, every few seconds, what's my question right now? Mm -hmm. What is my question right now? What is my question right now? Just to become more aware of the fact that we're asking questions. Right. What is my question right now? What is my question right now? So then that, and we could do that, of course, with the other elements of reasoning as well. Mm -hmm. And again, just to, to give a recap very quickly. So the idea that we are focusing on when we talk about the elements of reasoning is that there are eight elements embedded in all reasoning. We have a purpose. We ask questions, which we're focusing on here. We use information. We make inferences based on that information and based on the assumptions which we're making, which mm -hmm. is another element of reasoning. We use concepts to guide our reasoning, which are all, which also inform and are interconnected with our assumptions. Right. And those are connected with our point of view, which is another element of reasoning. And all of this leads to implications. Mm -hmm. And when we act on our behavior, our thinking, we end up with consequences. So basically we're, we're, we've boiled the, re, the elements of reasoning down, Richard Paul did years ago, and then we are continuing the work, boiling this down to the eight elements. So we're burrowing into these eight elements. Mm -hmm. We're focusing on questions right now. And so if we take any of the elements of reasoning, if we take purpose, if we take questions, if we take any of the elements, we can ask questions based right. on that element. Right. So even questions. So if I'm in the domain of questions in the elements of reasoning, I can say, well, what are some questions we could ask about questions? Mm -hmm. So one is, what is the question at issue? What is the real question versus what is the question that I think I'm pursuing? Something like that. Right. Uh, right. That's a possibility. Or what are the questions embedded in this question? Or is there a better question for us to be focusing on right now than the one we're focusing on, in fact? Right. 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 And, and if you think of like a, this kind of like a, a, a discussion like this, we are, as we move from one topic to another, we're asking a host of questions like, is it time to move on? Have we developed this enough? Do we need more examples here? We're, we're doing that underneath our thinking. Yeah. Yeah, a, a, a thing that's kind of, that I ponder a lot is, is, is kind of the, what I consider almost a fact, and that, it, that is that people can get along, many people can get along fairly well without knowing even about the elements of reasoning or without actively pursuing critical thinking. Some people can get along very well with it, uh, as we see by thinking, looking at thinkers and great thinkers in history. I mean, they, they may have considered the elements of reasoning kind of implicitly, but they didn't have them in front of them. So we can get along pretty well without doing it explicitly much of the time, but, I always have this very strong sense that we can make our lives and our thinking very much better by asking questions related to the elements of reasoning. So that I might do it okay. Um, I might get along, make my fat, use my example earlier, to make my family's life better. I might do that okay without ever explicitly asking myself the question. 
But as soon as I, I articulate the question, how can I make my family's life better? Oh, all these roads open up for me that I didn't have before that I was just, I don't want to say blundering down, but just kind of meandering down these paths without kind of knowing where it is I was going without asking the question of what lies ahead. So um, I'm always I'm puzzled by puzzled by that. And I think that's a lot of people's resistance to asking questions. They that they they feel oftentimes incorrectly. I'm doing okay now without asking many questions, and often they're not doing so well. Um, yes, I was going to. I'm glad you ended with that because mm -hmm. I thought that it was you opened that up. It was I felt it was a a little misleading. Mm -hmm. We can basically get along without explicitly mm -hmm. using the tools of critical thinking or here we're focusing on the elements of reasoning. Right. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think of it that way. The way that I think of it is that certainly I agree, we would have to agree that a considerable amount of, of excellent thinking has been done without explicit knowledge of the theory of critical thinking mm -hmm. within every field of mm -hmm. study. But that those people are the rarities right so take literature so we have the classics mm -hmm. if you think about the, the the classics even if we stretch the list of agreed upon classics it's still a pretty small group mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in comparison to all the publications mm -hmm. that have been produced mm -hmm. so th these people were thinking critically to some degree to to a high degree in certain areas, mm -hmm. not necessarily in all areas. So take someone like Dickens. Dickens was very good at revealing pathologies in terms of, uh, uh, of institutions. Mm -hmm. people. And so that was, that's one example. So he was very good at that, but he wasn't so good at creating the, pre, the character who was high, who's highly rational. We don't really have that example from Dickens. Right. We have a lot of critique, which is very well done. And this is what we tend to see in the literature, the critique, the right. uh, uh, show, uh, revealing the problems in human societies and right. human thinking. Right, and to add to that, uh, just to go on the Dickens part, not, I thought, I think too, yes, he was excellent at revealing the problems in the institutions in late Victorian England, but, I don't remember any time when he actually proposed a good, strong way of making things better. His mm -hmm. emphasis was never seemed to be on that, not in the novels, but as far as I could tell, not in his thinking much either, even outside of the novels. Mm -hmm. So again, there, uh, mm -hmm. that there's a spotty nature to our thinking. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we know that there are many, there are countless examples of criticality mm -hmm. occurring in human life. Mm -hmm. The question is, is it enough <laughs> to mm -hmm. uh, sustain us and help us live at a level of self-fulfillment. I mean, for all humans. Right. See, we're so far from that reality. Mm -hmm. And mostly people in, or half of the world's population are asking the question, where's my next meal coming from? Right. Or will I get healthcare if I need it? Or do I need to run for my life right now with my whole family and leave everything behind me? I mean, it just, mm -hmm. the wars and all of that. So this, means that these people never have a chance at right. the kind of work in the kind of world that we're 
trying to help create. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yes. So we we have so we we can look at any of the elements of reasoning again, and we can ask question based questions based on those elements. We've given multiple examples of that. We can ask, well, what are the implications I'm facing in this situation if I make this decision? Growing mm -hmm. in on concepts, what are the key concepts driving my life right now? Mm -hmm. What are the key concepts driving my professional life? Mm -hmm. What are the key ideas uh, guiding my, my role as a parent? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My role as a teacher, my role is in this intimate relationship. What ideas am I bringing into the setting? Mm -hmm. And are those ideas reasonable? And does this other person have the same ideas of the same thing, so to speak? Or there, are we diverging in our ideas? Mm -hmm. So there, is an, there, is, there are unlimited numbers of questions we can ask when we understand the elements mm -hmm. of reasoning. Mm -hmm. And for those who want to go further, uh, we suggest that you look at the Thinker's Guide to Analytic Thinking and their mobile resources on the elements of reasoning on our website. So let's move on then to intellectual standards. So intellectual standards are the thinking, the standards by which thinking is judged by critical thinkers, basically. So if we take the term critical thinking, well, thinking is reasoning in the way that we're conceptualizing thinking mm -hmm. right now in this context. And the critical, the term critical brings us criteria mm -hmm. that we need to adhere to mm -hmm. <coughs> to be thinking at a high level of quality. Mm -hmm. so some of these intellectual standards, just to name them, uh, are clarity, accuracy, relevance, breadth, depth, logicalness, fairness, sufficiency, and there are many others. Mm -hmm. These are some that we begin with, justifiability. So we can take any of these intellectual standards and we can ask questions based on these standards as well. Right. So can you give a few examples of that, Gerald? Yeah. Um, one thing that I, that I find quite striking is the way that asking a, the question about the standards makes us can make us think in a, in a really a quite different way. So if I just ask you an ordinary question, like uh, how did you spend the last three, four hours? Uh, uh, just, just, and I ask you, just, just tell me about it. And so you tell me about it. Now I say exactly the same question, but I assert one of, insert one of the standards. I say, tell me what you did in the last three or four hours, but be as accurate as possible. That to me, if somebody asks it that way, it puts me in an entirely different frame of mind about how to ask, how, how to answer what I've done in the last three or four hours. The last three or four hours under the first question, I just casually give you my answers. Once you say, be as accurate as you can, accuracy being the standard, I now think, okay, well, I, how about this? Well, no, I, that is, I, generates all these questions. Something similar happens if I take the standard of precision, mm -hmm. um, so I ask you, so be as, as precise as possible about what happened in the last four hours. You see that when people get in an automobile accident and they have to fill out this form or the, 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 the police officer asks and what exactly, what happened or what exactly happened. And you have to fill out the form 
in writing or online so that it's actual words, not just casual talking. And you got to be extraordinarily precise. Well, the person hit the left side of my car. And then I ask you the front, the door, the rear on the, the left-hand side. So asking, so describe your last four hours, but be as precise as possible. It changes my whole way of thinking about it. Um, so that, that's, I think, true for all the standards. And there's this great thing about the standards too, that we can, if we're, if we're adroit about them, you can do it in casual conversation and it makes it very much richer. So imagine you're sitting around thanks, the, the table, Thanksgiving, all your family members and friends are around and someone starts making a point and you can ask, well, the clarity, here's a clarity question. Can you give me an example of that? It's not confrontational. It's not putting them on the spot. It's not saying, I disagree and you're wrong. Can you give me an example of that? Or about precision. Can you give me some of the details of that or sufficiency? So do you think that's a full answer or is it only a partial answer to the political problems you have been talking about? Mm -hmm. um, and each of those sends us to a different frame of mind and I think changes the way we answer to a great degree. So the standards are, are actually to begin questioning. Yes, yes. I was thinking of your first example. Tell us what you've done in the last three or four hours, something mm -hmm. like that. And you added first the standard of accuracy and then precision. So accuracy mm -hmm. means get it right. Make mm -hmm. sure every part of it's right. Precision mm -hmm. means give us a, a lot of the detail, all of the right. details or some of the details are right. We, we were not clear about how many details the person wants. Right. But then I was actually thinking when you started adding standards, I was going to immediately add the standard of significance. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So if I had said, tell me the, tell me what you've done the last four hours, Gerald. I mean, what you've done of significance. Right, that's right. I breathed in, I breathed out, I breathed in, I breathed <laughs> out. That would not be <laughs> an appropriate answer because it's unimportant for given the question exactly yeah. or you can say to someone now what have you been reading lately mm -hmm. and they say um i've been reading the local newspaper okay so what have you been reading of significance ah right and right. that forces the person to say well maybe nothing <laughs> oh, right and yeah. maybe i need to go and grab a book by seneca <laughs> I mean, so what are you reading of significance and actually that's a good it's a good example it was a maybe a freudian slip because seneca said read only the best works and read them again and again uh -huh. so that he he um believed that mm -hmm. so so the standards are always are almost always needed as we move through the day. Right. And so if I'm, if I am preparing for, let's say a talk, then there are certain things that I need to do in order to perform at a certain level, at a, at a high level in my view, based on mm -hmm. my knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so I've got to ask certain questions like, Am I, am I focusing on the most significant points I could make? Right. What are the most significant points? Often I'm dealing with concepts. I'll ask, what is this concept? If I'm dealing with the concept of creative thinking, mm -hmm. I, might, I might ask, what is creative thinking? Mm -hmm. 
So I might go to the dictionary and look up the word creative first. And so then and I connect that to the word thinking and show people how the two uh, work together. Mm -hmm. So in other words, what are the concepts driving this talk? Mm -hmm. uh, how can I, what examples am I going to use? Right. And right. so uh, what I'm saying is that um, the, the intellectual standards, as you said before, when you talk about the elements of reasoning, we are, we are often adhering to intellectual standards right without realizing it when we don't when we ha don't have explicit awareness of intellectual standards mm -hmm. so there are many people who are clear accurate relevant broad deep and etc within certain domains of thought maybe their field of study right um, for example and they're doing this intuitively they they may not be able to tell us why why they're making this move or what move they're making Mm -hmm. but they are adhering to these intellectual standards mm -hmm. and so the question is then not do we ever adhere to them because we must or we wouldn't be alive i mean you must sometimes be clear accurate relevant and so mm -hmm. forth or you just be a basket case mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. everybody sometimes or frequently or somewhere in between adheres to intellectual standards so the question becomes how can we make our adherence uh, more explicit right. so in other words if i'm preparing for a talk so just as a, based on this little example that i gave if i'm preparing a talk the next time i do i may stop and say remember that conversation you had with gerald in that podcast so you said you take a little time and you really formulate your questions now you know mm -hmm. you're asking these these are good moves these mm -hmm. are coming to you intuitively linda but what is not coming to you intuitively what mm -hmm. other questions could be asked Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, based on intellectual standards right. for that matter the elements and they come they go hand in hand as we know yeah and and for me the standards um two of the standards tend to fall into a separate category for me and those are the standards of depth and breadth in that oftentimes clear accurate and relevant and as precise as necessary uh come to me fairly straightforwardly but but depth and breadth um generate a different variety of questions for me often now depth can mean a lot of different things but one of the main ways we use it is what are some of the complexities what are some of the com complications of this so if i take even many ordinary questions and i step back from the question and a problem i'm having in my life say and i ask okay so what are some of the complexities of this situation mm -hmm. that opens up that question opens up avenues that i'd never thought about before right um uh many people have strong political views and they have they're come on very strong on this side or on that side just full force, and I do that sometimes as well, but then I ask, what are some of the complexities of the situation? Um, well, that makes me have a much more refined and intellectual, and engage in much more intellectual humility as I try to answer the question. Um, and something is similar with breadth. How can I look at this from different points of view? Because we all tend to be strongly embedded in our own point of view. And, I, and when I ask, how are other people looking at this? Or how are other reasonable people looking at this? Or even if I think the person's view is unreasonable, how many 
it, it, unreasonable in this case, how many otherwise reasonable people are viewing it another way and how do they see it? That can open things up for me in a, in a major way. Depth, mm -hmm. and, depth and breadth lead, well, obviously, deeper and more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. On breadth, that's an, that's an interesting uh, move that you made there, and it, it made me think about um, when we think about point of view, we tend to think about entering reasonable other reasonable points of view that we may mm -hmm. be not considering. Mm -hmm. And um, one, one thing that I do to expand my own breadth, I guess, of knowledge is I try to read in the works of and biographies of distinguished thinkers. Right. People who have accomplished at a high level. Mm -hmm. And what, 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 how do they think about life and how do they think about things? And what are their habits? What are their intellectual habits, so to speak? Mm -hmm. And that, that looking at exemplars for thinking, I think is a very important um, phenomenon that we should engage in much more of as humans, because we tend to look at the masses and how they're behaving. I mean, look at TV, look mm -hmm. at movies. You rarely see portraits of the rational person. Mm -hmm. See, even in classic works, again, like in the in Dickens books, yeah. you see a lot of the dark side well illuminated. But yeah. what about the bright side well illuminated? So for example, take a biography of, or the autobiography of Nelson Mandela. Mm -hmm. The autobiography of Nelson Mandela is exemplary because in it, you can see lots of examples of critical thinking, although he's obviously Mandela's not using the the term, the term critical thing, but he's making a lot of the moves explicitly. Mm -hmm. And he, he, you know, he said, we had this information, but we lacked that information. So it's an example, but we also see a considerable amount of intellectual humility in him because he also brings in mistakes that they made in thinking, right. that he made in thinking, I arrogance that they, you know, that the fact that they ever got caught was really their fault. They weren't, they weren't thinking well when mm -hmm. they were, caught and then sent to prison. It was a very, un, that was the most unwise thing that I think they did. Yeah. But he, so he illuminates how they got caught and how they got became careless. Oh, oh that's, that's interesting. I, I didn't know that about him, but I'm, I was in another podcast recently in which someone asked me who in history uh, would I say is a critical thinker and uh, I uh, backed away from the question because I, I said, well, with all human beings, uh, there are parts of their lives where they think critically and there are parts of their lives where they don't. And if I name anyone, there mm -hmm. people will find numerous examples of how they mm -hmm. haven't been critical thinking, been critical thinkers or, or didn't live up to their ideals. I, I just recently read something about Gandhi, whom I have immense respect for, about how his son, when Gandhi was younger, but his son was around 20, uh, so Gandhi must have been 40 at least, maybe 50, his son wanted to marry a Muslim woman, and the son was a Hindu, and, and Gandhi absolutely forbade this and said that 
this is going to ruin India if his son does it. And his son listened to him and broke off the engagement. And, uh, and I thought, wow, that's so inconsistent with what Gandhi stood for. So if I bring up Gandhi as a paragon or as a, even as a partial paragon, someone else on another side can key in on the deficiencies. So I always shy away from that, uh, yeah. Yeah, so let me let me add to that. that that's a very uh, good point mm -hmm. and one that we really need to fully understand that that and so if we ever name an exemplar, we mean an exemplar in certain areas that we can see clearly or we think we can see. Right. And in other words, if you can just take the the, the, the parts that where the person excels and learn from those parts, you still have to be able to critique the, the weaknesses in the person. Indeed. So, yeah. And the, this leads us back to the importance of being able to think critically in general terms so that we can distinguish the mm -hmm. two. Yeah. So you could say if so, somebody might say to me, "Well, Linda, you're you're going on and on about Mandela being this great thinker, but what about the fact that he actually, by making all these decisions, he in essence abandoned his family?" Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there isn't any response that I can make to that that's mm -hmm. going to be satisfactory because he in fact did that, and he mm -hmm. in fact did have a responsibility to his children. Mm. So that, but, and he also raises that point. Right. And he doesn't really defend himself very well on it. Yeah. But so what I'm saying is that we, we've got to be able to look at exemplars and see the exemplary things that they do right. and or did and not say, but we've got to torpedo the whole person. Because right. if, we, if we do that, we'll have, we will have no exemplars. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, so, social psychologists sometimes call that the, the halo effect, meaning that if someone is good in some respect that we think high, that's very important to us, we will halo the rest of them. We'll think that the whole person is, is, is good or moral or ethical or, or thinking mm -hmm. strongly. And uh, similarly, there's a halo effect on the other side. If someone is evil or, or does very bad things, we think that person is evil in all respects. So, um, and yet neither of those seems accurate in fact, mm -hmm. but more than that, it's just a simplified, oversimplified view of the way humans are. I mean, mm -hmm. humans are not this univocal kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. and uh, not only that, but over the course of their life, they're clearly not consistent. I mean, what I thought of as an adolescent is very, <laughs> Well, you we have to go all the way back yeah. to all those decisions yeah. and average it all in. That's, yeah. that's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. So then we are all imperfectly adhering to intellectual standards. Mm -hmm. That is sometimes we're clear. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're accurate. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're giving enough detail. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're thinking within other points of view that are relevant, sometimes we're not. So then again, it comes back to us, to each one of us to be responsible for uh, telling the truth to ourselves. 
right. about the degree to which we are adhering to these intellectual standards. And this is all related to questions because if we're adhering to these intellectual standards, we're asking questions related to those standards, though they may be implicit. Right. Yeah, and, and, and it brings me to a, to a kind of gripe I have. There, there are people around who say you can't, uh, can't teach critical thinking. You can't, you can't teach critical thinking. And I've had, I had actually somebody who was a provost at a major university say that to me. Well, of course you can't teach critical people to be critical thinkers. And it, what, what bothers me about it is that it's, uh, it's as if they see critical thinking as this single thing which you either have or don't have. So the question is not quite, can you teach people to be critical thinkers, but can you teach students, say, to think more critically than they do now, to more often raise questions, more often ask about their assumptions or the implications and consequences? And the answer to that seems clearly and obviously yes, and eminently testable in a straightforward way. Um, so, uh, again, it, it, it goes with this idea of everything fitting together, every, all the parts of us as humans being a single thing. Um, that seems to be completely unrealistic. Yes, and it, when we look at the, the literature on mental health, mental well-being and, and oh, therapeutic right. approaches that work, what we increasingly are seeing even in the research uh, is that critical thinking leads to lower levels of depression, for example, and that doesn't mean in every single person, in every single case, right. but it means that when people, for example, and this makes obvious sense when you say it, when people make poor life decisions and negative implications follow, mm -hmm. depression often follows as well. So if we can reverse those decisions, or make better decisions to begin with, which would even be better, mm -hmm. um, then we can have, you know, we make better life decisions and we'll be less likely to be depressed. Right. And so this is, in other words, and, and any given person may not, now I'm thinking about the continuum of learning. So, or you can going up the ladder, we mm -hmm. may, any one of us may not, we may not make it from one side, the poor, a very poor thinker to the best thinker in the world. We're probably not going to, right. but what if we made it halfway? You know, mm -hmm. what, is, in other words, what if we improve mm -hmm. a considerable degree? Mm -hmm. So you're more, very much more often you're accurate, very much more often you are logical. Right. And in any case, critical thinking has never been had, has never been given a chance. Right. It's never, it's never been utilized in an extensive long-term way, to my knowledge, really anywhere, mm -hmm. so that we could then say, we've actually tried critical thinking, and mm -hmm. we know that it doesn't work. We haven't mm -hmm. actually tried it. Mm -hmm. So not in, on a grand scale, and not routinely, and not using this rich toolbox mm -hmm. that we have in the Paulian mm -hmm. school mm -hmm. of thought. So we could talk more about intellectual standards, but I think for anyone who's interested in going further, remember we have a thinker's guide to intellectual standards mm -hmm. and, uh, and you can sit down and write out each word, each intellectual standards word, and then ask yourself, what questions could you ask if you understood that, uh, that 
that concept, that standard. Right. And the same would be true for the elements of reasoning. If I understand purpose and reasoning, then what are some questions I can ask based on purpose? If I understand significance in reasoning, then what are questions I can ask based on significance? Am I asking the most significant questions in my life right now? Right, right. For example. Uh-huh. So those are two um, categories of concepts that we focused on in relationship to questions. Now let's move for a few minutes, if we could, to questions we can ask when we are taking seriously intellectual virtues. Mm-hmm. And so if I could, now I'm reading from How to Study and Learn, The Thinker's Guide for Students on How to Study and Learn a Discipline. Okay. So let me just give a couple of examples. So let's say I want to develop intellectual humility. Intellectual humility, as we know, means that we can that we we can accurately and do accurately distinguish between what we know and what we do not know in a given situation. And we are very happy to admit what we don't know, assuming that no one is going to harm us by admission. Mm-hmm. But in any case, we are willing to admit the, the limits of our knowledge. Mm-hmm. And we're happy, we're happy. And you can hear when you listen to good scholars in a field, no matter what the question is that they're being asked, they don't ever answer any in any other way than they know how to answer it. Mm-hmm. And that is, they don't, you know, well, when the person's trying to get them to say more than they know, they, they never do that. They just say, well, we don't really know the answer to that yet. Mm-hmm. That may be unsatisfactory, but we, no, I can't say for sure. Right. They don't say what they think when they don't know what the truth is. Right. Right. And so you can really learn from people that have that kind of intellectual humility. So this is one intellectual virtues, excuse me, one of the intellectual virtues. And of course there are others and just to name them very briefly, the ones that we tend to focus on in our cluster, our core cluster, intellectual courage, intellectual empathy, intellectual integrity, intellectual perseverance, confidence in reason, and intellectual autonomy. And we can add intellectual discipline, intellectual responsibility, intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> just take intellectual humility again. So we can ask questions like this when we're trying to develop intellectual humility in ourselves. What do I really know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. sort of like Descartes, you know, what do I really know? But mm-hmm. then you could say, what do I really know about myself? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now imagine, okay, so that's your assignment for today. Write the answer to the question. Mm-hmm. What do I really know about myself? Mm-hmm. And then you can say about sort of anything about the situation, about this other person, about my nation, about, what is going on in the world? What do I really know versus what do I think I know? Yeah, um, it, that, it's very, it, a couple of the questions you raised there just uh, strike me uh, about intellectual humility. I don't want to say intellectual humility is my favorite of the traits, that there's something kind of ridiculous about saying that, and my favorite changes from moment to moment, but <coughs> maybe intellectual humility is one I incline to from when I was very young that I inclined to in a very strong way, maybe more than to the others. But um, I just get often 
impressed with how much I don't know, even about the things that I know the most about. Um, <laughs> someone in a, in a, here's not one I know a lot about, but some, uh, I was asked on a podcast uh, having to do with the military, did I, did I see um, the, he said, the disaster in Afghanistan as a, as a critical thinking error. And I said, you know, I really can't answer. I just don't know the information that the decision makers had in front of them when they made the decisions they made. And I don't know the assumptions they were making at the time. All I get is stuff from the from social media or from the from newspapers or from some sources, which are not the decision makers. And I don't even know how many decision makers there were and whether they all agreed with all these aspects of it. And so there's a way in which I can't really give you a, 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 an answer about the disaster in Afghanistan, but maybe I'll be able to find out in 30 years or so when historians have, accurate, have access to these, to these documents. So that's a, it's, a, it's a variety of, I don't know, even if I have, even if I have strong views about what happened in Afghanistan. Um, and again, this is something I mentioned earlier in an earlier podcast of ours. The re one of the reasons we think it was, it was a failure of critical thinking is that it was so disastrous, but that's outcome. Um, that's different from reasoning it through well or not ahead of time um, in that if it had turned out well, we'd have said, oh, we reasoned it through well, even with exactly the same reasoning if the Taliban had acted in a different way, say. so. Uh, the way things turn out, well or badly, disastrously or, or fabulously, is one indicator of how well I've thought it through, but it's only one indicator. Uh, success or failure depends on a lot more factors than that. Um, so, yeah, I, I strongly incline toward intellectual, toward the questions prompted by intellectual humility. Um, mm -hmm. Richard, I remember, I, I gave a, a, a keynote, and Richard was uh, really pleased because I said um, how much I liked finding out I was wrong about things, and I, I really do. I just enjoy that tremendously, something I believed for a very long time, and then I find out that's not true at all, and, um, and I, <laughs> it just kind of, it just opens things up for me. I think, oh my goodness, that's wonderful. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I'm wanting to burrow into your your example <laughs> a bit, but <clears throat> I think it's a the example of Afghanistan is a tough example because there were such uh, human costs involved, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we can't, from our perspective, know what moves the decision makers were actually, in fact, making. Mm -hmm. We, we don't we don't know that right. so we we do know that certain things could have been done better to save uh, more lives and in, in any case even if it and in once that had been done let's just say the consequences would have still been horrible for everyone else so in other words, there wasn't a way to get everyone out of the country, but the United States government did have responsibility to certain people. And 
so we can take the example apart. We can examine, and I think we can critique parts of what happened mm-hmm. with even with intellectual humility. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it, it hinges a lot on how much of those outcomes or the likelihood of those outcomes were reasonable to know ahead of time, right? Not after the fact, of course, we see it. Um, okay. and, uh, yeah, so, and that, I, I just don't know, but I have not, I haven't kept up with the literature on the, the disaster in Afghanistan either, so my- Well, and I think that we did know, and we could have done much, but a much better job and again, I think you can bring intellectual humility into the situation and mm-hmm. still know certain things. Oh, absolutely, yeah. On the face of them, they, they seem obvious. Mm-hmm. And then in some cases, you could even then be wrong. But mm-hmm. your other point about uh, enjoying changing your mind, you see, this is a very rare trait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very few people are happy to say, Oh, yes, I've I believed this for 20 years. Thank mm-hmm. you for telling me that I've been wrong all those years. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> you see, that because we connect, we tend to connect our identities mm-hmm. to our ideas, which mm-hmm. we should not do. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a person of value in and of myself because I am a person. And yet, I have certain responsibilities to think as well as I can. Mm-hmm. And when I have an idea that's wrong, if I, you know, if I, if I, if it's not connected to my identity, then I can go, oh yeah, okay. So you've given me another way of thinking about this. Right. It's right. great. I'm so glad because actually now that I think about it, these 20 years I've been using these other ideas, they haven't really been serving me very well. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Um- yeah, and uh, and sometimes it's not so much uh, finding out that I was wrong as going back to breadth. Um, and that is, uh, if I take a, about during COVID-19, wearing, wearing a mask, being vaccinated, getting a booster, I'm strongly in favor of all three of those. And, and, and I think those are, I don't want to say completely correct, but overall much more correct than not wearing a mask or not getting vaccinated or not getting the the booster but when i began thinking to myself how do how do those people who haven't done any one of those three things and are against those three things how are they thinking about it it didn't get me to change my mind but it got me to explore the ways in which i could at least seemingly reasonably see how, well, I'm really not, it's not reasonable. I'm not saying this is me. This is the, the point of view I'm thinking through. It's really not reasonable for me to believe the CDs, the, 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 the government with respect to these three. And look, look at the changing information they're giving us. Now, to me, that changing information is very positive. It means they're dealing with uncertainty and they're giving us the best answer they can at any time. But if I don't pay attention to that, I can think, well, you know, sometimes they're saying wear a mask. Sometimes they're saying not wear a mask. Sometimes they're saying uh, 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 cleanse all surfaces. And then other times they're saying you don't have to do anything about the surfaces. So they're just all confused. I'm not going to believe them. I'm shortchanging it. But I can yeah. put myself in a position where I can see, ah, 
I even have analogs like of those in my own thinking about things that the government has done. So um, it didn't cause me to change my mind, but it caused me to see another point of view with more intellectual empathy than I had originally, to use another word. Right. <clears throat> and of course, there are different reasons why people would refuse a vaccination. Right. Um, and the, um, the, the, the point that you made about the, the, let's say the way the government has behaved and the way that people think about the government and that we can't mm -hmm. trust our government. Mm -hmm. See, the, the, uh, the government in a way gets what they deserve. In other words, the gov our government has through the years done many things that were underhand and were not in the, the interest of the people, either here or internationally. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people then that don't trust the government. Right. And that it makes sense that they don't based on the real evidence that you can read, which would show you why you shouldn't trust. Mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. But this question of the vaccination is a question that is fundamentally a scientific one, mm -hmm. not a political one. In fact, it's not a political question at all. It's a mm -hmm. scientific question. Right. And now you could say in the scientific and the scientists don't necessarily agree. And they've also misled us a few times. Mm. And, and within, they came out with one vaccination, which actually resulted in certain blood clotting in people that were quite young, and then they died in its early phases. Well, now we know this, and now the people coming behind them are not going to die most likely because they are they know what's right. happening. It's a certain kind of blood clot, and they know how to go in and fix it. Um, mm. So what, I, what I'm saying is that and what people don't have to realize is that we're living through a plague that yep. we in a, a situation that humans have really never lived through exactly in this form. Mm -hmm. And there are parallels going back in history now almost 100 years. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of the people living now were not aware, of, you know, we're not alive then. So what I'm saying is this is this is directly related to the subject of questions because what mm -hmm. people are real are, are doing is they're making the wrong move by saying, you know, well, why should I go along with the government? Mm -hmm. They make that move. They're showing that they don't know what kind of question we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. And then even though it's a scientific question, we realize that the scientists are not necessarily going to agree, especially because we're in early days mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. vaccination and so even when you trust let's say the scientists because you have to trust something here mm -hmm. and it is a scientific question even though you trust the scientists it doesn't mean you necessarily would want to be the first person vaccinated that is right and right. i myself would not and i said early on i will be vaccinated after millions mm -hmm. have been vaccinated now maybe that is a um Mm. And, and a view that lacks courage and certainly it's true mm. Mm -hmm. but that's what i'm saying is just just this I'm, I'm not i'm saying we can't just follow scientists because they say something is true right. we follow the data 
that hopefully has been gathered objectively. And when it comes to something like a vaccination, which is going to be very powerful, it makes sense to me to, to right. <laughs> make sure there's enough data for me personally to say that I'm comfortable with that decision. Right. Well, and though, though you're completely right that the question of the effectiveness of the, vac of the vaccine or of a booster is a, is a scientific question, it gets complicated by the fact that the government is the one that tells us what the scientists are saying. Yes, yes. So I have to listen. So if I listen to the CDC, I'm not exactly listening to the scientists. I'm listening to those who report to me what scientists have said. And uh, with other government agencies, what the EPA says um, depends on who gets appointed as head of the EPA by this particular administration. So the guidelines that the EPA, scientific guidelines that the EPA puts out change from one administration to the next because of political considerations. So there's that intermediary that the government often plays in relating the scientific findings to me. Um, I can maybe get around that by as someone suggested in a Q&A webinar I gave a little, just a few days ago, um, by going to the experts myself and reading the scientific journals. But that first, that's a huge enterprise. And second of all, I'm not that confident that I will come to a better interpretation than the CDC comes to reading those same scientific journals. So um, it gets complicated. It is complicated, but when in the end, we as thinkers need to be able to distinguish between a political and a scientific question and any other kind of question. Absolutely. And when it's a scientific question, we need to know we've got to rely on the scientists who know the most about right. this particular issue. Yes. Yeah. And that is... Um, and, and it, that those scientists may come to us through the CDC or some other website, and they may not. But mm -hmm. basically, when we're when we see these scientists agreeing across the world, and they're mm -hmm. saying the same things, mm -hmm. then then that's going to be more powerful to me than when we see uh, disagreement. Right. And then we can see them making all kinds of mistakes as well. And this adds to the problem. So for example, early on in this pandemic, remember, we weren't supposed to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. and, I, and unless you had something. Right. 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 And to me, it never made It was never logical that we shouldn't right. wear a mask. Right. And, and then a few months later, it was suddenly the scientists saying everyone needs to wear a mask. Well, that right. doesn't help their credibility. Right. Right. So often scientists are making statements when they themselves are not fully mm -hmm. um, informed, mm -hmm. but they're behaving as if they were, instead of saying, we think this is true, yeah. we're not sure yet, this is the best we can do, we are not sure, and in that case, they should have erred on, erred on the side of more masks, but they right. erred on the other side. Right. So <laughs> all of these are important for people all of these complexities are important when we think about how to pursue questions. Yeah, and, uh, and I, I was actually maybe at least emphasizing, maybe over-emphasizing intellectual empathy of how people who would be opposed to vaccinations uh, 
why they might do it. I wanted to make the most reasonable case from their point of view I could. But in fact, my belief is that many people just pick up their data, such as it is, about the effectiveness of the vaccine by looking on social media, by talking to their friends, uh, by sitting around in a coffee shop and hearing what other people have to say. So we pick it up in this kind of piecemeal uh, way from unreliable sources and we then act on that. And, and that seems to me to be a much more accurate reconstruction for at least why many, at least some of the people oppose vaccinations. Um, well, we are beginning to get into one of the intellectual virtues on intellectual humility. You started by saying this is a unique uh, trait, and in a way it, it is, because if you don't have a considerable amount of intellectual humility, then you really can't develop much as a critical thinker, because the opposite of intellectual humility is intellectual arrogance. Right. So. If you're never asking questions, and I'll just read a few others that we can ask when we're trying to embody intellectual humility, to what extent do my prejudices or biases influence my thinking? Or you could say probably a better question, to what extent are my prejudices or biases influencing my thinking right now about mm -hmm. X? Mm -hmm. And to what extent have I been indoctrinated into beliefs that may be false. Well, that's a very difficult question to answer. But if you say, to what extent have I been indoctrinated, let's just say into beliefs by groups that I've been thrust into. So I could start with, I was thrust into my family and mm -hmm. then I was thrust into a, maybe a mm -hmm. religious group, but I was thrust into a school district mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And so how, might I have been indoctrinated in these through these groups early on? And it is even that is going to be difficult to do. Right. right. And and uh, you say thrust into, um, whereas a much more hard hitting term for me is born into. So yeah. I'm born into my family. I can be born into my religious or political or cultural group. And uh, those have a have a very deep seated effect on us right mm -hmm. because maybe during the first 12 15 years of my life that's really all i know is my culture is my is my family is my religion is my political views uh the ones i get from my family and so to grow out of that to merge on the other side takes a considerable amount of intellectual humility and that to me takes a great amount of time and intellectual humility, I think maybe of all, the of all the virtues, is the one that most directly leads to questions. So I ask myself, of these structures that I've been born into, what do I not know about, about my family? Um, right? I mean, you grow up thinking your parents are always right, that they know all the answers, and, and so it becomes very obvious that they didn't. But, but but I could ask myself that question. I'm not saying to ask it when you're six years old, but uh, mm -hmm. ask it sometime during your life. Yeah. But it's hard when those are at the level of assumptions now. Indeed. So yeah. that's why these questions are, they, they make sense and we can see the power in them, but how do you get at these beliefs that you or have uncritically accepted? Right. So that we tend to find in a context when we start to develop our thinking, and we are committed to developing our thinking, and let's say 
in a situation I find myself prejudging or something, then I can stop and say, wait a minute, where is that coming from? And that may lead me back, hopefully, to that false or that unreasonable uh, assumption. Yeah, a question I ask, I, I, I ask my students often when we worked on intellectual humility was, uh, so the opening question is a take-home assignment. What are some things that you believed uh, five years ago that now you think are wrong, incorrect, or, um, or off-center, or misleading, or something like that? And my students could readily write down a whole bunch of them. I was in love with so-and-so and thought it would last forever, and um, <laughs> uh, so the, uh, huge numbers of them. Um, so then they do that and they find, they find that very enlightening. But then the next, question, the next assignment is, what are some things you believe now that you think maybe in five years <laughs> you might come to think are wrong or misleading or off center or throwing you off? And, and that's a much more profound, <laughs> deeper kind of activity. And my, my students seem to get a great deal out of it because it causes yes. stepping back. Well, you, you kind of you 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 kind of push them against the wall a bit because right. you you don't you, the first part of it seems sort of easy. I mean, right. it's not easy, but it's easier than what's to come. That's but you've right. already done that, so yeah. you've proven you've yeah. proven this. Yeah. Five years later, that you you've changed yeah. some of your thinking. Now you're going to have to prove what you're going to change for the future. Yeah. Where you actually don't want to change anything because right. you think everything that you believe is accurate right now. Right. And I got to ask, so what are the odds that everything you believe now is going to turn out to be the same? You're going to believe the same five years from now. And, and yeah, so, right. Yeah. Very, yeah. So we, we have just begun to scratch the surface of going deeper with questions. Mm -hmm. I think we should wrap up for today and do uh, our next part two, uh, pick up part two with this continuing discussion on how questions help us develop intellectual virtues and then focus on other ways of going deeper with questions. So thank Good. you, Gerald. Thank you, Linda. Wow, wonderful. I've <laughs> enjoyed this tremendously. Yeah. It's always a lot of fun and I'll see you next time. Okay, good. Take care, everyone.